1: Hello and welcome to the interview series, New Books in African-American Studies, where writers of African-American life and culture discuss their new books. I'm your host, Sherry Johnson, and today I'm happy to speak with Erica R. Edwards, Professor of English at the University of California, Riverside. Dr. Edwards is the author of Charisma and the Fictions of Black Leadership, published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2012. In our conversation, the professor discusses the ways in which African-American literary texts, as well as films and popular culture, both shore up and contest charismatic leadership. If you want to learn more about the roots of black modern politics and their presence in the postmodern black political arena, then Erica R. Edwards' new book is for you. Here, Dr. Edwards highlights both histories and alternatives to black political leadership found in literature from the Reconstruction period to the 21st century by authors such as W.E.B. Du Bois, Zora Neale Hurston, Paul Beatty, and Toni Morrison. Listen in. I'm sure you'll enjoy our conversation. Okay, good day and welcome to New Books in African American Studies. I'm your host, Sherry Johnson, and today we're joined by Dr. Erica R. Edwards, author of Charisma and the Fictions of Black Leadership. Thank you for being here today, Erica.
0: Thank you for having me, Sherry.
1: Before we jump into our discussion, uh, why don't you share a bit about yourself? Um, you know, I guess. Where you were born and raised? Maybe we can start there. Yeah,
0: sure. I was um, born in Washington, D.C. to um, two very boisterous graduates of Howard University, uh, <laughs> and I grew up outside of D.C. in Silver Spring, Maryland.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you know, suburb of D.C. You know, really diverse, and I grew up in a very, um, you know, sort of socially conscious. Um, sort of post-Howard community of, of you know, my parents called it a village, you know, that sort of raised me. Mm-hmm. So nice. um, after that, I did my undergraduate work at Spelman College in Atlanta and then um, spent seven years in Durham, North Carolina at um, Duke University. So I grew up most of my life on the East Coast and, and throughout various parts of the South. And... Now I'm out here mm-hmm. on the West Coast. <laughs> how are you? How are you enjoying the transition? I love it. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been here five years now. It's been really, really great. So, mm-hmm.
1: so now you consider it home?
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of a, an inter- interstitial space. It's home for now, at least. Mm-hmm. You know?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So. Um, all right. Cool. So, how did you? I guess. So
1: that's your your familial uh, background. What about your academic background? Um, you know, who were your mentors?
0: Yeah, um, that's a great question. I, in, in undergraduate, I studied um, English and Spanish um, at Spelman, in, in a very um, really rigorous liberal arts curriculum, um, and was really interested in comparative um, sort of modern literatures. So. Um, I worked with, I did undergraduate research on, actually, early modern literature with um, a professor named Kristen McDermott, Um, and towards the end of my college career, I started being really a lot more interested in black cultural production and and different kinds of black cultural forms, and um, did some work with... Alma Jean Billingsley Brown, who I thank in my book, um, and Shirley Tolan, um, and went on from there to study with um, Juanima Lubiano and Maurice Wallace, principally at Duke University. Um, two really um, amazing scholars of African American literature and, and Black cultural studies more generally. And and both of them, um, Juanima and Maurice, were really interested. And in, in questions that really came to occupy me throughout this project, questions about um, sort of black nationalism, um, black masculinity, you know, what, what Wanima calls black family values discourse, um, and different kinds of... You know what we could call sort of black common senses, or, or what we call now after one name, black common senses. Um, different kinds of ideologies of, of black nation building, black nationhood. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so working with them, but also you know so many amazing people at Duke like um, Charles Payne, Mark Anthony Neal. Mm-hmm. Um, John Jackson, um, I I really became interested in a kind of interdisciplinary approach to you know the study of of you know what I call in a broad sense black politics, um, not only formal black politics but black social movements and all the different formal and informal ways that black people have um, you know tried to remake the world right since mm-hmm. since our being here mm-hmm. in the U.S. So right okay
1: really good so what um what then let's let's move into talking specifically about charisma mm-hmm. um, you know what inspired charisma? was there a particular problem you were trying, trying to solve or
0: yeah, um you know, I think like most people you know i I spend a lot of time um, working around this sort of central question of, you know, what constitutes charismatic leadership or, you know, this sort of central problem in my book. Um, I spent a lot of time sort of walking around it and sort of uh, working up to it. So, um, you know, like any first author, PhD, you know, it's a, um, we know that it's a sort of messy process of writing the first book that has everything to do with, you know, what seminar papers you write Mm -hmm. in your first year, and like, what you do in the summer of your third year, you know, so um, what was interesting to me is I was, I was, as I just said, was taking classes across the disciplines in African American Studies, and, um, you know, things started to, it started to strike me the way I kept asking the same question. Um, as I read through contemporary black fiction um, um, and and sort of noticed these sort of the um, recurring trope of these sort of black, usually male charismatic leader um, and 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 not always in a kind of in, and that figure didn't always have a sort of honorific uh, or. Um, mm-hmm. Sort of reverential presence right. in, in contemporary African American fiction, um, which, which as as we know, is much different to how that figure is often sort of characterized or figured in American culture more broadly or African American culture more broadly. Mm-hmm. So I was sort of noticing that dissonance over and over again, and um, I ended up doing some some coursework in um, social history with um, Charles Payne who's a historian of the long civil rights movement. And, you know, it struck me, what started to strike me as I was sort of reading through this archive of fiction and doing sort of, um, you know, kind of coursework in the history of the civil rights movement, Mm -hmm. was that in in spite of overwhelming historical evidence to the contrary, Mm -hmm. we sort of um, continue to hold, at least in the popular imagination, we continue to hold this sort of fiction that history is made by gifted men, right usually male, usually martyred, right um, And so you know following up on people like Kevin Gaines or Hazel Carby or Charles Payne or, or more recently folks like Lee Rayford, I really started thinking, you know what is it that explains our this sort of seduction of charismatic leadership and and how do we understand it to have shaped? The sort of archive of twentieth-century um, African American fiction, which is sort of my my critical area of study. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. So basically, um, I really like what you're saying there about. Um, you know, kind of paying attention, this kind of reflective process where you pay attention to the types of questions that continue to mm-hmm. uh, reoccur in, in, any, in any of the courses that you take or any of the mm-hmm. books that you're reading, mm-hmm. um, and that usually leads us up to um, understanding that this is something that really mm-hmm. interests us.
0: Right, right, right. All right. Yeah. so and At some point, I, I. Um you know after i completed my dissertation and and have been working you know on revisions for a couple of years i um You know, had originally included. I originally planned to include a chapter on William Melvin Kelly's *A Different Drummer*, a 1962 novel, and it didn't quite make it into my dissertation. Mm -hmm. But when I was working on revisions of the dissertation and expanding it to um, the monograph, Mm -hmm. um, I decided to go back and write that chapter on *A Different Drummer*. And I started with a paper that I wrote as a junior at Spelman with um, Dr. Billingsley Brown, right? So, I mean, there's a way in which I think you, you, you know, the questions that we have are never one they're never new right to anyone but they're also not often that that new to us you know like if you think often we think you know oh i think i might start working on this but often the sort of intellectual roots are are sort of deeper if we pay attention
1: definitely and so what ends up happening is the question that we ultimately say we're trying to solve in our book or monograph is um not just the result of one thing but rather a Kind of a series of discoveries that actually right, right, right. lead you to that 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 question. Yeah, or
0: a series problem. of problems. <laughs> sure, sure, yeah, a series of recurring nightmares. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so, or yeah. Dreams. Let's right, right, oh, dreams.
1: right. Exactly. Okay. So, um, all right. So you've already begun to use this term um, charisma or charismatic, and and I'm wondering um, if you can. Just kind of um, talk to your listeners about charisma. What mm-hmm. you know? How do you define it? How we? Do, what does it look like to to the listeners right now?
0: Yeah. So charisma, um, coming from the Greek, literally means gift of grace, mm-hmm. um, and it it you know originally appeared in. Well, the Bible, (laughs) but it 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 originally started appearing in sort of church history Mm -hmm. to refer to the sort of phenomenon of prophetic collectivity, right? So, um, you know, Paul, I think, in his first letter. To the to the Corinthians says, um, sort of refers to the charismata as these sort of gifts of grace or the gifts of the Spirit, and they included everything from you know speaking in tongues to um, uh, to, to to the laying on of hands, etc um and so so it as it started to appear in the um you know early church history it referred to this kind of phenom- phenomenon or phenomenology of religious and sort of embodied collectivity mm-hmm. um which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, so that's one way of thinking about it. Another way of thinking about it is as a formation of authority or as a sort of structure of authority. And coming out of um, sociological studies like those by, um, principally, you know, Max Weber, mm-hmm. who's a you know um, 20th century sociologist who um, gives us his sort of theory of modern political and economic organization, which, you know, for him um, ha- has to explain why it is that people in the modern world mm-hmm. uh, sort of defer their authority to another. So he's trying to explain all the different moments when people decide to give up their power to uh, a, so another entity. Mm-hmm. So um, for Weber, there are three types of authority. Um, so, you know, bureaucratic authority or the sort of um, the power of the bureaucratic state, um, traditional authority like the monarchy. And then, you know, for him, charismatic authority is the only kind of authority that can actually disrupt the sort of reign of bureaucracy in the modern world. So so Weber sees charisma or charismatic authority or the charismatic leader as the only sort of um, force that could disrupt the sort of rational organization of modernity Mm -hmm. Um, and so the the charismatic leader sort of is a agent of kind of miraculous um, um, historical change Mm -hmm. in a moment of crisis Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. so so there's that notion of charisma as a formation of authority. Mm-hmm. For me, both of those ways of um, describing or, or explaining charisma, mm-hmm. you know, are, are are to be valued in their own right. But don't actually explain for me why it is that um, particularly in African-American culture, um, the sort of notion of the charismatic leader um, as a kind of mysticized um um, sort of image of history itself continues to um, kind of hold sway mm-hmm. or be hegemonic in Gramscian terms. Right. So um, I tried to, tr- tried to sort of specify and um, um, sort of historicize the emergence of charisma as a cultural trope in African-American culture. So for me, um, I explain charisma as what I will call a storytelling regime, or a set of fictions, mm-hmm. um, and a set of performative prescriptions, or a set of um, kind of directions on how to act out, right? Mm-hmm. Or how to act out freedom, or how to act out history. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so as a sort of complex of mythologies, and as a as, as a compact of performative prescriptions, that whole. Compel and contain, right? That both inspire and also um, constrain movements mm-hmm. um, for social and political change. Mm-hmm. So I think of charisma as a kind of double-sided or doubly forced um, kind of a cultural impulse, mm-hmm. right? As much as it is um, a you know, in Bay-Berry in terms of structure of authority, or or in in church history in terms of phenomenon or phenomenology. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah so okay good so thank you i the idea that you um you know that a a charismatic leader has to perform or performs a certain um number of characteristics um suggests that um, are kind of gestures to your the charismatic scenario mm-hmm. in which there are players, the leaders as well mm-hmm. as those who are led. Um, can you talk a little bit just uh, of of what those performances look like, so that you can kind of um, imagine uh, what you're what you're talking about that scene?
0: Yeah. Well. Um so, just to go back for a moment so when i when I talk about this sort of notion of the charismatic scenario i 'm mm-hmm. referring to work that 's coming out of um, performance studies, particularly yes. i 'm building on um, here is that NYU Diana Taylor. Mm-hmm. Um, so for her, the scenario is it names for her, you know, kind of loose script or portable sketch, right? Mm-hmm. Um, something like a script, but not not exactly, right? That's right. Um, a kind of movable set of prescriptions for the body, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's What's important there is that for Taylor, the scenario transports historical knowledge in the body, right? So. Um so, so as opposed to thinking of history as as simply a kind of um, sort of archive of documents or a sort of archive of, um, of of material things, right, or objects, right? Taylor's trying to think about history as propelled or um, impelled by bodies acting out their relationships to power, yes, right? So yes. so so for me, it names a kind of um, confluence of both um, kind of narrative and performance, right? Yeah. So so for me, the charismatic scenario, we could see then as a portable sketch or um, as I said, a kind of movable set of prescriptions for, for body and, and for affect or feeling. Mm-hmm. So um, charismatic events or narratives, right, um, both events in themselves like marches or rallies or charismatic stories like, you know, you know, take something like Eyes on the Prize, right, right. Um, as an example. Um, those kind of charismatic, um, you know, texts or events articulate a range of performative and narrative gestures um, that determine in broad outlines um Like, you know, uh, both in broad outlines, both in the single event and in and the um, sort of historical narrative that it sort of um, sort of worked into. Mm-hmm. Um, so So I think in broad outlines of the charismatic scenario in this way, so there're sort of conditions that necessitate leadership, right? Like scarcity, or suffering Mm -hmm. or lack. That's everything from the um, sort of uh, post-reconstruction material conditions of black life in the U.S. to the sort of post-Hurricane Katrina material conditions of black life in the U.S., right? Mm -hmm. Um, So the sort of historical condition of scarcity or suffering or lack um, that necessitates a kind of people crying out for, um, liberation from a brutal, usually foreign regime, right? So, um, sort of notion of a people sort of crying out for leadership um, and being answered by, a um, sort of a force beyond them, right? So, um, when we think about the scenario of African American leadership, it usually goes something like this: you know, a um, people crying out for liberation while A leader is um, sort of being instructed in the spirit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, The leader struggles against self doubt and convention, right, or tradition to rise to the promise of his calling. He passes through the burning bush experience. So, for someone like Martin Luther King, the kitchen conversation with God, right? Um, For Malcolm X, the jailhouse conversion, right? uh, and so so then the the um, that kind of instruction in the spirit um, leads to or builds toward the leaders' swift entry onto the stage of the um, rally or the convention mm-hmm. or it, onto the stage of history itself oh, right so, tables are tossed angels are wrestled thieves are expelled frauds are exposed right Um, but most importantly collective desires and destinies come into full articulation Mm -hmm. right by by the leader himself so for african-american um sort of notions of of charismatic leadership mm-hmm. the performance of prophetic speech is absolutely key right yep. i mean that that is in it, in itself its own kind of scenario yes. right yep. um so so building on um 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 sort of uh historians of black church history mm-hmm. we could sort of notice this kind of um scenario of prophetic speech looking like, you know, Mm -hmm. the gracious acknowledgments, the sort of gripping of the podium, the, you know, preachers uh, or speakers sort of wiping of the brow, Mm -hmm. the soulful cadence, Mm -hmm. um, you sort of work up into... Um, crescendo, right? right. Um, the the uh, always eventual casting aside of the script, right? You know, the right. speech and the journey into improvised, That's speech. right? 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 Um, the call and response. So, I mean, it. You know, it's what's more important is that, right? Not that sort of I name that scenario, but the fact that we could all recognize well, it and see right. it, right?
1: right? Right. Um. So. Yeah, it's that 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 I'm depending on, that recognition that I'm depending on when I say, can you describe the charismatic scenario? Because while our listeners may not necessarily recognize it in that term, it is something that many of us will recognize just based on the conventions that you've outlined. Right, right. Um, and what's even more interesting or important to me is that um, we begin to think about that as a convention, as something that is, um, you know, hege- hegemonic, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and why that is. And, mm-hmm. um, excuse me. <clears throat> you know, why it is that um, that image, that scene um, holds such authority mm-hmm. in its convention.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, the people... Yeah, that- and, I, you know, one of the obvious reasons is that, you know, historically, it has worked, right? Right, it, right. It has, it, you know, in many ways been an effective tool for, mm-hmm. you know, as I said, sort of articulating common desires or common needs. It has also, though, been, as, you know, as I try to explain in the book, been sort of... um Part of a kind of um, history of intra-racial um, sort of disciplining or policing, particularly, um, you know, coming from a, a black feminist analytic, I'm 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 really interested in in these sort of gendered prescriptions of yes. the charismatic scenario. Um, so you know, but I think it it's also important to um, um, to really sort of recognize how charismatic leader. Leadership functions as both uh, sort of um, as both a um, liberatory and silence promise, right? And, and, and oppressive, right? Exactly, right, right.
1: right. I I really appreciated throughout the entire text. I think you do a really good job of showing that conundrum. Mm-hmm. Um, of the charismatic scenario um, and then of course your use of the literature you know, African American literature particular mm-hmm. text to show the ways in which authors trouble this invention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, qu- the question that you talked about a little bit earlier when you were saying um, what you were noticing as you were doing a bunch of reading the question for me is how is it when we see all of these examples in, in the literature of authors troubling um, mm-hmm. this convention that it still holds such sway mm-hmm. that it it's still lauded um and so a little, a little bit later i want to ask you know get into the, the conversation where we you know we talk about you know what's at stake in the yeah. postmodern moment of, of of black politics yeah that, yeah that this um that this particular scenario still um, is uh, put on on a pedestal um, yeah. so hard to kind of knock over.
0: Strength, right, right, strength, right.
1: Speaks to its strength, actually. Um, you know, I saw your interview on Mark Anthony Neal's Left of Black a short oh, while yeah. ago. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that's. That's so fun. Pardon? I said, yeah, that was a lot of fun. It was. It was really, it was actually what drew me into. Um, to reading this book, mm-hmm. um, you mentioned there Erica Badu's right. disruption of the script. We're talking about how it holds, you know, yeah. how how recognizable it is, and how you know how how all players, mm-hmm. all all participants in the scenario seem to know their various roles. Yeah, um, and so I wanted to begin. You know, I thought it would be a good place to begin today. Um, you know, to talk about Erica Badu's disruption as we begin to move into talking about this charismatic scenario as a conundrum. Um, right, right, right. You know, can you talk a little bit about, um you know, set
0: us up. You know, yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I opened the book with this reading of um, Erica Badu's performance at the 2005 Millions More March, which was a a uh, rally in DC that was celebrating the 10 year anniversary of the Million Man March, right? Which had which was, you know, the the largest political gathering of its of its type in this era, right? Yeah. Um, and so right following up on that march 10 years earlier, the the march organizers had really been interested in um, sort of moving beyond a kind of um a um, political set of imperatives based strictly in the needs of you know black men or even something like the black family right mm-hmm. so they're really interested in building alliances across racial lines across gender lines, um, etc so they asked Badu to participate and to um to and and she was scheduled to sing her song, Time's A Wasting. Yeah. Um what's really interesting to me as I read that performance is that um Badu goes through a series of um of of sort of um uh, sort of back and forth or contest with the with the sort of structure of the march itself right mm-hmm. so even though she's supposed to sing you know she goes on stage and says immediately you know stop stop the music i'm not gonna sing right i'm not gonna sing right and then she begins to deliver kind of impromptu political exhortation right. about the sort of need to reimagine, yeah. rebuild, rethink, yeah. reorient black politics, particularly in the wake of Katrina, right? right. Um, so this is, you know, October two, uh, October 2005, uh, immediately after Katrina. And she's really trying to speak to, you know, a real sense of urgency about, you um, Reapproaching this the sort of very notion of black politics or black liberation um but given that she, her role in the march is to sing a song a song. Right, think right. it would be a song that is dedicated to um young men right um you, if the people who know about you will know this song but you know the lyrics are um You know, time's a wasting. Don't you take don't you take your time, young man. Right. So in a certain sense, it's a sort of um, honorific, almost ode to young, um, you know, black men. Right. And so so holding off that song for something like five minutes. Right. To give this very sort of. um, meandering um, you know in many ways stilted speech right mm-hmm. um, she is is sort of standing in for the role for me of contestation yeah. right really um, r- you know reorienting what expectations of what can happen in that very moment and bearing the weight of that contestation in her own body yes. right yeah. Um. So, so that for me it was an important way to open the book, right? One, to um, sort of point to this is the scenario that we know, right? Like yeah. that we expect yeah. a lot of opening acts and um, sort of um, speakers to come before the big event, which is the Farrakhan speech, That's right? right? Mm-hmm. Um, so so to say like this is a scenario that we know, but we have also witnessed it over and over again being disrupted That's throughout right history, right? So this isn't something that is exclusive to African American literature, right? Um, it also, the sort of disruptions of charismatic authority as the, or charismatic leadership as the um, sort of pre- necessary precondition for black freedom, mm-hmm. we see that in African American music, yes. in African American political and social discourse, mm-hmm. in sort of African American everyday talk, right? Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, it was to say, like, this is a book about literature, yeah. but it's also a book about, like, our sort of black life world, and, yeah. and the world that we know is diverse in its political and um, epistemological perspectives, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, it's it's it's,
1: des- it's it's very recognizable. I thought it was a really phenomenal way to open the text so that everyone um, can get on the same page. I um, and understand precisely what you mean when you talk about the a the charismatic scene mm-hmm. and and the disruption mm-hmm. of that scene and also um, the. Uh, way that you can find this scene in secular spaces as well as sacred mm-hmm. um, spaces mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's right it's something that you can all, I, I often draw on when i'm you know teaching the sermon in in uh, my early african-american literature class mm-hmm. you know you can use martin luther king jr's or even, you know, say, even C.L. Franklin's, one of mm-hmm. his sermons, and then um, compare it to, you know, Malcolm X's um, The Ballad or the Bullet, mm-hmm. perhaps. And you can see that they're both very different spaces. However, there's, they share all of the elements of that charismatic scenario that you set up for us earlier on in your text. Yeah. So you can find it in popular culture as well as in you know on all facets of our lives.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I found the way that you
1: structured your book. Let's talk about the structure um, a little bit um, in helping us. um, Found it helpful to um, helping us understand the trajectory of lauding and contesting charismatic Mm -hmm. leadership. Um, Mm -hmm. So. Can you talk about the three parts of your book and what you attempt
0: to do in each? Yeah, so the the book is, as you said, broken into three parts. The first part, charisma. The second part, contestation. The third part, curiosities. Um, And so, you know, I had an obsession with alliteration when I I first started this project. It was originally called Contesting Charisma, you know, um, at any rate, so, so the first part, charisma, is really, you know, just trying to explain, um, you know, in, in many ways, as I have done through this interview, explain the kind of formation of charisma as a um, cultural ideal in African-American culture, um, particularly since Reconstruction, yeah. right? So, um you know, I talk about, you know, early in the book, I talk about um, the sort of shift um, from slavery to reconstruction as, you know, in in, in Sadia Hartman's terms, a non-event, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so emancipation as a non-event, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so trying to think about the failure of reconstruction to, um, you know, really produce, you know, Black freedom in an expansive sense, and, and the way that that Um, sort of transition to reconstruction necessitated, um, you know, in a real kind of, um, you know, as as a real kind of survival strategy necessitated the emergence of charismatic leadership as a kind of mediator between um, um, sort of black life and and white life or white power, right? So, um, you know, I start with, you know, something like Frederick Douglass's speech at the 1893 um, Chicago World fair, right? Um, But I also think in that first part of the book, you know, where I'm really trying to talk about the emergence of charisma as a cultural ideal, I start to talk about how it's shaped, particularly with respect to textuality or literature, um, and and literature in a broad sense of, um, you know, covering a range of um, kinds of print print culture, right? So, I talk about, you know, the kind of circulation of um, Frederick Douglass's autobiography and the the sort of um, the textuality in that text. Right. The the way that Douglass, for example, draws on um, uh, that Douglass narrates his story of. Um, of freedom and and eventual sort of spokesmanship as a kind of consequence of his having read um, the Colombian orator at twelve years old, right so yeah. trying to think about that sort of scene of reading and inspiration and sort of what it what it means for how we think about charisma. Right. Um, and then and then and then I sort of turned to some some um, um 1920s and 1930s texts to really sort of move into the, the the kind of primary archive of this book which is um sort of African-American literature since World War one right so um I, I spend some time in the first part talking about Du Bois's dark princess a, yes. a crazy 1928 novel yes. about, um sort of afro-asian revolution yes, right yeah. Um um George Schuyler's nineteen thirty seven Black Empire, another um crazy in yeah. this case, <laughs> historical novel about Pan African Revolution or Pan African Empire building, right? Right. right. Um, and so so I talk about the way that those two novels in particular are, you know, for me really responding to What had by then, right, coming out of Reconstruction um, um, and moving into sort of what I call black political modernity, which, you know, rested on or was was figured through this sort of scenes of modern black leadership particularly around someone like Marcus Garvey, mm-hmm. right? Um, so mm-hmm. trying to think about how both of those those novels are responding to the sort of performances of Black political modernity, particularly as they relate to the charismatic scenario mm-hmm. um, in, in, in ways that don't quite get us, you know, where we might want, where I might want to go with um, this sort of work of disrupting or contesting charisma, right? Right, right. Um, but... And so I turn in the second part to texts that, for me, are, are more sort of explicitly challenging the expectation that charismatic leadership is the sort of necessary precondition for um, sort of freedom throughout the Black world, right? So um, Zora Neale Hurston's 1939 novel, um, Moses, Man of the Mountain, right, and kind of uh, rewriting or um revision of the exodus myth in black vernacular mm-hmm. and um william melvin kelly's 1962 you know, sort of civil rights novel a different drummer mm-hmm. um a novel about um sort of black freedom making in the absolute absence of um sort of gifted sort of sort of spoken charismatic leadership right mm-hmm. yeah um so i read those two novels as you know really doing the work of of unraveling the charismatic scenario and reimagining black freedom making in the absence of charismatic leadership. And then finally, in in part three, curiosities, I'm really trying to think about the um the post-civil rights era as a sort of palette of or as a collection of really sort of questions about black politics, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, what I didn't want to do in this book is say charismatic leadership is bad for us and these are all of the political models that are good for us, right? Right. right. I really wanted to leave us with a sort of troubling set of questions about where, Mm -hmm. where, Um, sort of politics is, where black politics is even located, or whether it's even locatable in the sort of post-civil rights era. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I talk in that third part through a sort of series of questions having to do or coming out of or as a response to texts like Paul Beatty's 1996, The White Boy Shuffle, which um, you know, in many ways, is the novel that in, that that finally sort of propelled this project into articulation. Yes, right? yes. one of the novels that really inspired me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a sort of parody of contemporary black leadership, or really a parody of the 1990s discourse of the black yeah, leadership void. That's right. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was. Um, in his his 1998 stand up, that that Chris Rock said something like, you know, we had Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, and then a whole bunch of substitute teachers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, like that sort of notion of of the the leadership void after the 60s, and sort of what that meant, particularly in 1990s black culture, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I talk about the white boy shuffle in 1996, and I also talk about the two early millennium barbershop films which right. you remember sort of um, sort of garnered a lot of um, sort of attention in the national media when when the film um, sort of introduced these jokes about Rosa Parks Martin Luther King and Jesse Jackson right these, yeah. these sort of quintessential black readers um and then finally, I talk about um Tony Morrison's Paradise" yes. as sort of the 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 novel that for me sort of um leaves us with this sort of devastating sense yes. charismatic yeah. violence, yeah but also really leaves us a space as Morrison always does, right mm-hmm. to sort of reimagine the world that we really want right and and what would it really um take to rebuild community or collectivity in the absence of singular charismatic authority, right? Yep. Yeah,
1: so. you're, you're, you're listening to new books in African-American studies. I'm your host, Sherry Johnson, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Erica Edwards, professor of English at the University of California, Riverside, and author of the new book, Charisma and the Fictions of Black Leadership. You know, Erica, a- often as we research the large questions of a book, we discover information that we were not expecting. Mm-hmm. Can you share with our listeners anything that surprised you?
0: Yeah. Um, you know, I there were a few things that really, you know, stunned me in this project. Mm. It, one was that, you know, there's so many ways in which you know, black cultural production or black expressive culture has imagined charismatic leadership so much as a uh, sort of void or lack, Mm -hmm. right? It's always the thing that we had or the thing that we um, should have, right? Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. never the thing that we actually have in the present, Right, right? It's a way in which for me, right, really reckoning with charismatic leadership as lack Mm-hmm. as absence was was really interesting and and um you know uh, you know early in this project i was i was watching um this you know great great um documentary on Marcus garvey Look for me in the whirlwind mm-hmm. and you know there's this this image in the film of um sort of UNIA mass meeting in which during the time in which um, Garvey is detained in Atlanta federal, federal Penitentiary. I believe that's somewhere around 1927. Right. And in the, in the middle of a photo, in the middle of the photo is this image of Garvey's empty robe. Yes. Um, and so like I really started, uh, I mean, that in a, in a certain sense, that image for me um, captured where I would, would eventually sort of um, really spend a lot of time thinking about um, this sort of uh, figuration of, of emptiness in Black mm. politics, right? Mm. So so things like that along the way were really um, sort of stunning. But then, of course, there was, uh, you know, Barack Obama somewhere right. around, yeah. you know, bursting onto the national scene somewhere around 2004 when I was maybe like a chapter in. Right, you know? right. So, um, you know you know, how to sort of wrap my mind around the, the phenomenon of, of Barack Obama. You know, I spent a lot of time really thinking about, you know, what that sort of emergence of this sort of new black leadership class that that sort of reached its apotheosis in the appearance of Barack Obama somewhere around 2004, right? Yeah. I'm trying to wrap my mind around that. Um you know, really was, was, was really a productive um, yeah. tension in this project, but also um, something that I had never, you know, really planned to deal with. And, for, you know, for a long time, you know, I spent a lot of time telling people, this isn't a book about Obama. This isn't a book about yeah. Obama. You know, in yeah. ways, I think that, 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 that my resistance had to do with um, my sense that, 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 the, that those narratives of charismatic leadership are so over determining that yes. they in many ways don't allow space for anything else, right? Yes,
1: so. yes, yes. I mean it's it was hard it's, you know, really fortuitous actually that that as you started writing you had uh the campaigning or just you mm-hmm. know, center of President Obama uh going on <clears throat> the national stage because it seems to me that as you're drawing um, this, this trajectory of what charismatic leadership in African American um, culture or cultural mm-hmm. production um, looks like it, it's fascinating to see it play how it plays out yeah. you know how it's used parts that are used parts that are abandoned um yeah, that's within right. the postmodern um, mm-hmm. black Black po- political um, state. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I even though I I know that you mentioned. Um president obama in the epilogue it was hard for me or easy easy for me <laughs> yeah, as i was reading along to draw
0: connections yeah. to where we are currently right right, right. Um, yeah yeah i mean it's in in many ways it's it could could serve as a kind of prehistory to the to the era that we're in now right right, right yeah i mean.
1: I guess we could talk a little bit about the epilogue right now um yeah. just because it seems seems to work right here where you have that. I mean all of the things all of the 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 scenes from the popular culture that you draw um or that you draw upon you know, Erickaba Badu um, you know barbershop and the arguments in 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 the media over particular scenes in in, in barbershop as well as um, Oprah Winfrey's decision mm-hmm. to um, you know the speech she makes in South Carolina yeah I I remembered very um, acutely each of these these moments. Um, But to read them through the framework that you set Uh up was just really um, eye-opening, a really interesting um, and astute way of reading um, charismatic leadership, not as necessarily something in the past, but something that is here with us today.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah, I have to... um Thank my my good friend Salamisha Tillid at at the University of Pennsylvania for really suggesting that I talk about this speech mm-hmm. in my epilogue. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it was it must have been two thousand seven when when um, Oprah Winfrey joined the, the campaign mm-hmm. for Barack Obama and she gives this uh, you know amazing speech yeah. in South Carolina where you know and what's interesting there is Oprah really sort of calls up the um, all of these sort of conventions yes. of charismatic speech I to mean, sort of give give us Barack Obama almost as a gift, yes, right? Yes, yes. So, I um, thought it was, I
1: mean, the whole calling, um, you know... Uh, Reminding the audience, although I'm not quite sure how many people within that audience uh, might have read Ernest Gaines. <laughs> right, right. I mean, this is what's so
0: tremendous. Like, like she's she calls up Ernest Gaines's um, novel, yeah. 1971 novel, the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, which right. was adapted for television in 1973. So there's a lot of people there who probably know the adaptation very well, right? At least, if not the novel, right, right. right. But so she she calls up that scene. In the novel or adaptation where um, the, the the you know I show say Miss um, Jane Pittman you know played by Cicely Tyson yeah. um, is saying are you the one are you the one yes. right yeah. and then as if in answer to that sort of literary cry or cry of this literary okay. character right okay. You know, Winfrey says, um, "I do believe he is the one wow. to view the audacity of hope." or right. Obama. Yes, you know. I thought so it was it's like phenomenal. amazing. This, mm-hmm. I mean, was it was so tremendous to watch how, like, you know, over, over, you know. At least 100 years, the literary texts have been, for me, a sort of site of real sort of a problematizing of charismatic leadership. And here's Oprah Winfrey saying, look at this text yep. and look at this leader. Yeah, right? yep. um, here he is. Right, right. Um, so, you know, for me, it was the, you know, this sort of... um you know this is really interesting sort of counterpoint to the argument that i had just spent all these pages laying out right, you know right. but um but it, in many ways also a perfect indication of sort of where we are in this current moment in history in which right on the one hand we see um you know in a lot of ways people think of the moment that we're in now as, as a sort of post black politics era right mm-hmm. um, You know, an era in which racial solidarity, particularly among black folks, is is no longer a given. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, We we could say that it never was a given. Right. But um, at any rate, it's it's more it's more difficult now, perhaps, than it has been throughout um, black history. So in in many ways, we could say that we're sort of post black politics. Um, And but on the other hand, we we can see how the narrative of black charismatic leadership, in fact, authorizes that narrative that we are now beyond black politics, right. right? So so that's a real um sort of productive tension too. Like that's yeah. something that we really have to think about. Like right. why is it that given the that that the very narrative of sort of post race of a post race US depends upon an a kind of narrative, a, a reductive narrative of black charismatic leadership, mm-hmm. i.e. Mm-hmm. because of Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King, and Barack Obama, we are now post-race. Right, right.
1: right. Um, It's so ironic. It is so ironic to be able to make that argument. And yet that argument or um, the way in which people make that argument um, is steeped in a very essentialist notion Mm -hmm. of um, black modern politics that, Mm -hmm. you know, has been um, restaged for us in a number Mm -hmm. of different ways. Since right, Reconstruction, right. it's it's really, um, <clears throat> excuse me, ironic and interesting to read it. I also thought that um, just kind of thinking about what surprised me or one of the things that um, I found most uh, interesting was, and it's related to the way in which Oprah Winfrey, you know, introduces um, pre- uh, who is now President Obama mm-hmm. um, at that rally is um, when you're talking about Dark Princess, um, Du Bois' Dark Princess, and the way in which masculinity and romance, you know, erotic love, um, are entangled with black modern politics, mm-hmm. Um it's very interesting that now here we are in the postmodern and she's talking about a baby, you know, how she was holding, Miss uh, Jane Pittman was the scene Mm -hmm. where she was holding a baby and that she's offering here President Obama um, as the answer to Mm -hmm. uh, the savior, that that black savior to uh, whatever struggles that we're going through at that that particular moment.
0: Yeah, yeah, that same sort of image of charismatic leadership as the sort of pure answer to social problems but also the sort of image of charismatic leadership as you know the most desirable love object yes um
1: so yes yeah it's It's, both
0: those things right like yeah. yeah yeah
1: i i um you raise an interesting point there's two 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 places that I want to go with this, because I think it's um, if we talk about the gendered ways in which um, uh, you know Black feminist texts are challenging that image that you know we begin or that we can look back to in the dark in Dark Princess, um, looking at that romance and the presentation in Black feminist texts of the Gothic. Mm -hmm. Um, as, uh, you know, kind of thinking about what we talked, where we started with the nightmare and the dream, the dream and the nightmare, um, can you talk a little bit about, um, the ways in which, um, you know, uh, black feminist texts uh, Mm -hmm. challenge, uh, you know, contest, if you will, the, the image, um. Of yeah. the, that charismatic leader.
0: Yeah, so, um, you know, it, it, and I'm thinking here about Zorno Hurston's 1939 yeah. novel, Moses Man on the Mountain, and also Toni Morrison's Paradise. Paradise. Paradise yes. Um, both of which center um, is sort of, you know, for, um, you know, for my book, what I would call a sort of gothic set of conventions
1: mm-hmm.
0: that really represent the scene of charismatic leadership as a nightmare, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yes. Um, not simply as a as a dream of liberation, but also mm-hmm. as a, a sort of cautionary tale yes. of, um, you know, really what happens when, you know, we expect our sort of freedom or a sort of new world or new social configuration to be channeled through one particular person, you know, privileged with a um, a sort of special relationship to the divine, right? Mm-hmm. So um, in, in Hurston's um, sort of revision of the Moses myth or the Exodus myth, she presents Moses, you know, in many ways, contrary to... Um, you know, black political culture, which sees um, you know uh, charismatic leaders as all types of Moses, right, or as all sort of made in the image of Moses, right, mm-hmm. um, yeah. great liberator, great deliverer. Mm-hmm. Hurston really figures him as, you know, this is 1939, right? So, so literary critics have read her Moses as, you know, for someone like Mark Thompson, a kind of um, Hitler-like mm-hmm. leader, right? Yes, um, yeah. Uh, or for black feminist critics like Deborah McDowell as, um, as a problem, right? Rather yeah. than simply as a promise. So Moses um, is responsible for, you know, parting the Red Sea, but he's also responsible for um, nearly killing his own sister. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, and so um really interested in the kind of monstrosity of that figure in um, in Hurston's novel, and how he sort of corresponds to other sort of Gothic figures, you know, um, you know, prototypically someone like Frankenstein, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yeah. So I try to think about that sort of figuration of monstrosity in in Hurston's text, as doing the Black feminist work of both sort of um, calling attention to um, the sort of possibilities of racial collectivity or Black collectivity, but also pointing to the real. Um, sort of um, gender violence that's often inscribed in black nation-building yes. um, projects, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so we can read Toni Morrison's novel as doing a similar kind of work, right, representing this scene of charismatic leadership as a violent scene of destruction, yes. um, not simply as a scene of, of um, sort of promise or calling, but also a scene of, of problems, right? Yes. Um, so...
1: Yes. I, I want to quote you because I, you, you, you speak, um, I loved your use of, of Audre Lorde's uses of the erotic, mm-hmm. um, erotic as power to talk about the, un, the, precisely what we're talking about now, the underlying gender dynamics in describing mm-hmm. um, leadership. And I'll quote you, you say that, you know, black women performers on all kinds of modern stages, mm-hmm. like the street, the variety stage, the pulpit the podium and the political stage as well as the literary stage of African-American narrative have contested the central paradox of black political modernity. Um, Can you speak to silencing Mm -hmm. as a violence?
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really good. So, So, you know, just to return for a moment to that, to the Moses novel, you know, I talk about the way that, you know, early in the novel, the story of um, Israel or the Israelites in, in Moses' Man of the Mountain is really Miriam's story, right? Miriam is Moses's sister, who's sort of the one who's in charge of, you know, placing him on the Nile River to protect him from um, Pharaoh's decree of, of that, that Every firstborn in Israel should be um, murdered, right? Mm-hmm. So Miriam sort of loses sight of Moses on the Nile when the Egyptian princess um, is it comes into the water to sort of bathe with her, um, with her um, sort of women servants, right? Yeah. So Miriam is sort of drawn into this sort of glorious image of women um, sort of bathing together, and I read that as a kind of moment of um sort of homoerotic scopophilia or sort of pleasure in looking mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so because she's so drawn into that sight she loses sight of Moses um and and loses him and so then Miriam goes back to um her family in Goshen and says um, you know um Moses is now um you know um, um you know, being taken up by the princess and he's going to be a member of the Egyptian court and like, he's going to be adopted. So really like, it's that we don't, we never know whether that's actually true. Right. We just know that it's Miriam's truth. Right. 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 So, so as she sort of tells and retells her story over and over again, it sort of gains momentum. Yes. Um, and, and it grows into the sort of legend of Moses, yes. right? Yes. Um, and so, so, so from the very beginning of the story, um, we get this sort of sense that, that we are really reading Um, Miriam's story however um, after those early chapters I think it's five chapters in right where where the story sort of makes a a total about face yes instead of giving us Miriam's perspective or Miriam's story it really sort of is drawn into its own sort of charismatic narrative of um, sort of Moses's formation in the uh, Egyptian court, right? Mm-hmm. A story that we've already known, we already know to be suspicious of, right? Right. right, uh, right. Nevertheless, it sort of gives us a story of Moses' burning bush experience and his sort of, um, you know, like, well, his flight to Midian, his meeting Jethro, his, you know, burning bush experience, etc., right? Mm-hmm. His coming back to liberate Israel. and And it's only later in the story that Miriam... And their brother Aaron start to come back to try to reclaim the ground that they've now lost in right. this story of sort of freedom making. Right. So Miriam comes back to Moses time and time again and says, you know, why are you taking all the credit? Um, why are you doing why are you um, sort of given all the power when really this is this is um, You know, one, I'm as I'm as powerful with these people as you are. Right. So is is the one who's in charge of um, sort of leading songs and dances in Israel. Right. Mm -hmm. She has her own sort of um, power among the collective. Mm -hmm. Right. She's a leader. It's also her story. Right, right. Um, um she starts to sort of challenge Moses for space um in the very narrative of, of Israel's freedom and and, and and is violently silenced, you know, over and over again. Um until, you know, in the end she asks for death. You know, it's so, um yeah, she asks for Moses to sort of leave her be, right? Mm-hmm. Um so, yeah, I mean, in that way, that sort of s- story of, of Miriam's um, sort of being silenced by Moses himself, but also by the novel, yes, right? Yes, yes. Um, it's sort of, for me, drawing attention to, like, what is actually necessary for us to sort of continue to reproduce the myth that gifted male charismatic leadership is the necessary precondition for social change, yeah. which is that it sort of necessitates the violent silencing of right. um, you know, sort of not only women figures, but these sort of um, radical histories of black struggle themselves, yes. right? So it sort of necessitates us sort of ignoring that history has actually been made by everyday people like like you and me, yes. right? Yes,
1: yeah. And that's why I thought that you're, you're, I'm so glad that you were able to kind of explicate that because I thought it was phenomenal not only in, um well, phenomenal in two ways, really, really smart in two ways. The first is that we talk about, um, usually, as, as you know, and we talk, um, people do literary readings of, of Zora Neale Hurston's Moses, Man of the Mountain, it's often read, or at least you know, by earlier critics mm-hmm. um, as lacking as somehow, um, yeah. you know, as somehow less than like incomplete. Yeah,
0: they don't capture the full stature of Moses as a figure, exactly. Um,
1: yet, you, in, in your reading, you um, you t- you know talk about the the dropping off of Miriam's story and then picking it up later on in the text. Um, as a silencing, as a violence that Zora Neale Hurston is trying to um, depict for us or stage for us, mm-hmm. um, you know, thinking about it in terms of this, the power of this narrative mm-hmm. and how it's it is overpowering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And how this woman has to then kind of fight through that silencing. I mean, ultimately, you know, seeing death as a kind of freedom. I mm-hmm. thought that, that your reading was really astute for that reason, but also I think for the larger reason of looking at African American women's texts mm-hmm. in African American literature literary history um, you know a-, a tradition that is largely um, has mat- matrilineal mm-hmm. roots is often just <laughs> Um, you know, those who are canonized are
0: predominantly um, men, yeah. right? um, male, yes, male authors. Yeah, Claudia Tate made this made this point a long time ago, which is that, like, the, the sort of narrative of Frederick Douglass as the sort of, um, you know, sort of prototypical black leader um, has in many ways authorized the study of African-American literature itself, yes, right? Yes, yes. So that's a way in which the field itself, after... Um, nineteen sixty-eight has been shaped by its own seduction mm-hmm. by charismatic leadership, particularly through that sort of master text yes. of you know the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, right? Yes. yes. So, so part of my um, sort of intention with this project was to, well, sort of um, you know really think through the kind of heterogeneity of the modern black freedom struggle, or the the sort of the, the all the things that we um, sort of. Um, have to silence when, when when we are only interested in reproducing a master narrative of black freedom as charismatic leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, but also really interested in um, sort of a, a kind of heterogeneity within contemporary African American literature and really um, um, you know offering a kind of black feminist critique of the field's investment in charismatic leadership as a kind of naturalized mm-hmm. um, sort of formation of of power mm-hmm. right mm-hmm.
1: yeah um, phenomenal. I mean I just I love that I love that you opened it uh, you opened the book with with an ultimate um, you know, ultimately, what would have been um, the, the you know the security guards of of the mm-hmm. on the stage for the millions more uh, march that escort <laughs> um, ibadu off as a as a silencing as a violent uh-huh. silencing um, and then closing um, well you close with with paradise but um, then thinking about um, just if we're staying on. Um, Moses man in the mountain as again a uh, you know silencing of that female voice mm-hmm. in, you know against this um, scenario this charismatic scenario yeah. it almost seems that we might say that just as uh, hegemonic as the charismatic scenario. Is within African American culture, so is the silencing.
0: Yeah. yeah. So
1: too is that silencing of that, um, you know, black female um, voice of discontent, you know, of contestation. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And that's not just a sort of um, silencing of female presence, but also a silencing of radical alternatives to um, sort of charismatic politics, right? Which means that, like, You know, Erica Badu standing up and you know telling everyone to stand up and scream out their own damn names was an attempt to like rethink what collective politics should actually look like. It should look, you know, in moments like a kind of ruckus, um, sort of noise, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, And be neat. It can't exactly. So sort of silencing that sort of speech act is also silencing a sort of history of radical alternatives to ordered speech mm-hmm. as politics, right? Mm-hmm. But also um, charismatic leadership as the sort of only viable way to articulate Black desires for social change. We know from our sort of studies of history that, um, you know, that that social change doesn't ever... Happen through like one person standing up and saying, this is what we're going to do now. Mm -hmm, Right. mm -hmm. So, um, so, so given that, um, then that silencing is, is doing more to us than just, right. Like, like, um, creating gender lines between who can speak and who can't, it's also, Um, shutting down and shutting out alternatives to movements, possibilities,
1: yeah I I think I completely agree Um, you know your reading of African American literature and the work it does in restaging um, or or contesting the conventional um, modern notions of black leadership is Important, not only phenomenal, but I think significant to where we are right now within um, post Black politics. Mm-hmm. And you state, if, if I may quote you, that it's your hope that African-American literature also summons us to a new politics of politics That's and, right. more importantly, clears a space for us to imagine ever more ways of surviving together this sojourn, mm-hmm. um, end quote. And I want to say me too. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Really good. Really good. Okay, so you've been listening to new books in African American studies. I'm Sherry Johnson. And today I'm joined by author of Charisma and the Fictions of Black Leadership, Dr. Erica Edwards. Well, Erica, we've taken up a lot of your time. Before we go, can you just tell us what you're working on now besides breathing, I would imagine?
0: (laughs) Yeah. um, You know, I was trying to read and think and, Mm -hmm. you know, um, sort of, you know, take some time to 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 devote to sort of thinking through a new project on african-american literature after Mm 9-11 which you know in many ways picks up on you know this sort of the sort of final moves that i make in that book are really about the sort of co-optation of a black freedom struggle in the service of a national narrative of um u.s global empire building Mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. um that's sort of where I am now (laughs) about black black people's role and, and particularly sort of public role as representatives of or as the face of a sort of new American empire so um yeah, more more of the same, and and a lot that's totally new and different. Right, you know? right. So,
1: well, we're looking forward to um, that
0: project. Uh, thank you so much for talking with us thank today. Thank you, Sherry. This has been so much fun. Yes, and, and I really for enjoyed it. All that you all are doing on, in these interviews—they've been really great to listen to. Oh, great! Thank you. All right, so we wish you all the very best. All right, thank you. Okay, take care. Take care. All right, bye.
1: You're listening to the interview series, New Books in African American Studies. Today I've been talking with Professor Erica R. Edwards as she discusses her new book, Charisma and the Fictions of Black Leadership. I'm your host, Sherry Johnson. Please join me next time.